cocaine was like a truth serum for me. Um, it allowed me to sit down and speak very honestly and, mm. and, and, and dive deep into like very thoughtful stories with, with, with people in the room. Um, mm. And, you know, unless you've done it, it's tough to identify with, but at 18 years old, sitting up at four o'clock in the morning, you know, at BC drinking beers and doing lines, um, you know, I'm pouring my guts out to somebody I've never met before. Those of you that are not familiar with who Chris Heron is, uh, we're going to add a, a link in the show notes uh, to the 30 for 30 special that you can find uh, talking about the whole story, uh, you know, growing up on the East Coast, you know, going to, to Boston University and so forth. Um, but incredible story. Uh, he's a hometown favorite of mine when he went to Fresno State, uh, played for Jerry Tarkanian. It was, it was a legendary run for, for that school and, and, and a huge impact on the community there. But there's, there's more details here, but like Darren said, you know, let, let's start, let's start early on, you know, what, what that was like, but, but then, you know, we, we've got some things that we want to, we want to discuss throughout that process. You know, listen, I grew up, gosh, I grew up, my parents had my brother when, um, you know, my mom was 17. Um, you know, my dad, same age, um, you know, they had me when they were 21. So very young parents, uh, no support for them on the back end from, from either family. Um, you know, we grew up hard initially. Uh, my parents are blue collar and they worked really hard to, to get us out of it, um, out of poverty. And they were successful doing that. Um, but along the way, my father, you know, he was an alcoholic. Um, you know, I, I knew at a very young age that his alcoholism was, was, was affecting not only our family, but, but affecting my mother. Um, and you know, his, his alcoholism, like, like it does with many, it has a ripple effect. And, you know, in hindsight, looking back, it hit me in multiple different facets of my life. And, uh, and I started drinking when I was 13. I started drinking his Miller Lights when I was mm. 13 years old. And, uh, you know, by the age of 14, I was drinking and smoking. Um, and then I entered high school where, you know, I was, uh, I come from a long lineage of athletes in my family, um, but also a very proud uh, city mm -hmm. when, it, when it comes to sports. Um, you know, season ticket holders for basketball games, three, four, four thousand people at home games. Um, and I learned pretty quickly that I was, I was, I was special at it. I, I, I had a special talent. I had a special mindset. Um, and the recruitment process started early. Um, and that type of attention, that type of stress, that type of pressure, uh, I didn't handle very well. Mm -hmm. And, and while I was. Uh, my father's alcoholism um, finally hit a breaking point with my mom and they were going through a divorce. So there wasn't much focus um, attention 
on me at that time. Uh, so my partying and, and my reliance on, on drinking um, increased drastically. Uh, you know, and obviously you referenced the 30 for 30, but, um, you know, at 18 years old, a freshman at Boston College, uh, you know, with this amazing future ahead of me, I jumped into cocaine. And, mm -hmm. and you know, after four months at BC, I was, I was asked uh, to leave the program. Um, I had three failed drug tests. Uh, I w it was either leave or be suspended a year. Um, and I chose to, uh, I chose to, to transfer. And, and, and like it was mm -hmm. said in the intro, I, I, I landed at Fresno State University. Yeah. Real quick, yeah, Chris, is, is, okay, so you see your dad and, and he's struggling with alcoholism. And you see the impact that it's been not only on your family, but especially your mom. Um, mm -hmm. so what do you, what do you think it was internally? And look, we're not psychologists. We're not claiming to know anything, but we're just kind of intrigued. So why do you feel like after looking back, you, you turned to that route, you saw what your dad was doing. You saw the damage it was doing. Why do you feel like that was an outlet for you at that point in your life? But I just think, um, you know, back then there was very little education around alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, there was very little attention uh, on substance use. Um, it was a culture thing. You know, mm -hmm. I grew up, that's what we did. That's what right. kids did. That's what guys did on weekends. They, they drank, they smoked. I was hanging out in bar rooms when I was 16, 17 years old. So mm -hmm. it, it was just kind of the makeup, the city I was from. That's how we, that's how we went about mm -hmm. it. Um, you know, obviously doing some self-reflection looking back, you know, um, full of fear, right. Yeah. Um, pressure, uh, you know, and, and watching my mom, you know, suffer from a broken heart, um, you know, all played a factor. Uh, yeah. I didn't have, I didn't have the right coping skills, life skills, um, to, to manage, you know, some of the things I was going through. So I believe that's why I turned to it. Um, you know, to me, that's the scariest thing about drug addiction. Nobody knows who has it. Right. Yeah. You know, right. That's right. So socially, so in high school, basically it was just a social activity. You didn't feel like there was a, an actual problem at all. In, in no. that far. So no. how did you, how did you go from uh, you were drinking, having a good time, but then when you got on the basketball court, court, Chris, and everybody knows, and I've talked to so many people, like when I worked at ESPN, we talked about your story. We mm -hmm. heard about how mentally tough you were on the basketball court. How did you divide, how did you separate what was going on in your personal life with what was going on in the basketball court? I think they were very, I think they were entangled. I, I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of my, my effort, um, my awareness was heightened because I was afraid to get caught. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so literally like I, I, I was like, they're not going to catch me. So I'm going to put in this work. Mm. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to try that much harder so I can continue this lifestyle. Um, you know, there was a part of me that had that in me. Um, you know, which is sad, right? It's, it's a very lonely place to be. You know, this struggle is very isolating, debilitating emotionally, physically. Um, 
you know, and, and to be chasing a dream, right? You, your whole life you're chasing this dream. And every step along, every step along the way that I took closer to my dream, I knew that I was getting closer to losing it. Mm. Yeah. So when, that, so when did you figure out, when did you find out? Was it in college or was it at the, in high school, maybe your senior year? When did you find out that, look, I have a problem? College, B.C., once they told me that I had to, uh, you know, mandatory drug testing for division one athletes and, and I struggled, uh, with, with, with separating myself from it. Um, that's when it became very apparent that, that I had an issue, uh, you know, because I, I couldn't, I couldn't walk away like others. Um, you know, there were other athletes I played with who would say, you know, I'm just not going to smoke during the season yeah. or, you Got a drug test coming up. I'm not going to smoke for the next couple of months. That was, I wasn't built that way. Um, and, and I think, you know, my freshman year at Boston college, uh, it was very apparent that, that I was struggling. I, I think about the, you know, and not to use the word lightly, but the high of performing and, you know, you're on the basketball court and everybody's admiring you and, and you get all the accolades and all the praise. Was that just, do you remember going back, thinking back, was that just not enough to overcome those other things? Like how, how did that, the performance high play into the, you know, the off the court highs you're doing? I never looked at it. Like for me, it was always work. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, it wasn't like, I wasn't performing. I was working. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so for me, you know, maybe that's where I could have been assisted or, 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 mentored along the way where yes if maybe if i had a performance approach to it um i wouldn't need so much relief from it on the back end yeah okay Um, how would you relate like passion for basketball like did you love the game i mean when you describe it as work to me like you don't necessarily love work sometimes you know hey i love doing the work right but like there's a difference right when you when you classified it as it was work to me like that like eliminates the passion aspect. I mean, is there any truth to that or did you really, you love basketball? No, I don't love it. Um, but, but I'll say this. I love the war that. Uh, yes. I lo- okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I love density. I love the battle, uh, that, that took place. Um, I wasn't like, uh, I wasn't that type of kid. Like I didn't eat, sleep and drink it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I played it. I put in a lot of work to become good at it, but like it, it wasn't something that, you know, I adored or, or, or loved. I just loved the, the battle. Um, and, and, you know, I guess to me that's somewhat played into my, you know, to be 15 years old and everything's a battle, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, that, that tends to lean towards maybe this kid's going to need some help down the line. Yeah. So when did you, did anyone come to you at an early age and, and, and that actually saw what was going on in your life and, and, and provide some help and some guidance? You know, BC, BC took a very different approach. BC was like the ultimate, um, like they weren't going to enable, you know, it was a three strike. It was more of a punitive approach. Mm-hmm. Three strikes, you're done, you're out. You can no, no longer be on this campus. Um, Fresno state, 
was the exact opposite. They kind of took a therapeutic approach. They wanted to get down to the root of it, talk about it. Um, you know, so I've had multiple people confront me. Um, you know, at a young age, it was pretty confusing about like, am I really a drug addict at 18 years old? Mm -hmm. You know, um, I think I was like stage one, you know, um, I was probably at stage one. Eventually, you know, I ended up at stage four, you know, right. where, where, you know, near death. Right. Yeah. So, so you're at Fresno, Jerry Tarkanian's your coach. They're taking that therapeutic approach. Um, but again, like your history, I mean, you performed, right? You mm. on that court were a warrior, but off the court, how was that move, right? Going, going from Massachusetts to to Fresno, California, that's a cultural difference. And, I mean, Fresno is a great place. And we could spend the rest of the episode mm. talking about Fresno. No, we can't. But there ain't much to do, no, right? Unless, <laughs> unless, unless you like going up in the mountains, I mean, there's not much to do out there. So how do you feel like the therapeutic approach, like, combined with just, like, the environment, what that, what that did for, you know, maybe escalating that stage of addiction? You see, I beg to differ, right? For me, it was very close to my home, like blue collar. Okay. Fresno. That's you right. know what I mean? Like I, I kind of jumped right into it. The, the blue collar, yeah. uh, hometown type feel of Fresno. But, yeah. um, you know, I just found myself in some crazy situations, man. I was hanging with, you know, some wild people. Um, you know, I was ending up, you know, in after parties in Selma and, and, you know, it, it, it was, I it try, was difficult, you I, know? I try to tell um, these guys, Fresno's not the California that people think, right? Like, you go you go to West Fresno, or you go to Selma, or you go to Stockton. I mean, it's mm-hmm. rough. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting crew out there, for sure. I mean, listen, I woke up many nights on what, you know, I, I, and I, will, I won't rephrase that, because I did wake up many nights, um, in West Fresno, mm-hmm. you know, because I would go to bed in the morning and wake up at night. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, my first year at Fresno, I was dialed in, man. Like if you look at my body type from sophomore year to senior year, it changed drastically. Um, I had this unbelievable mentor coach. His name was Johnny Welch, who has been an assistant with the LA Clippers, uh, as well as Denver Nuggets and Sacramento Kings who, who took me under his wing and and made me who who I became basically as a basketball player. Um, you know, once I separated myself from Johnny Welch after that sophomore year, my my college career, instead of going up, kind of tabletop. You know, like mm-hmm. I was just a, my trajectory um, stopped. And you know, looking back, if you had any insight on my personal life, it all made sense because my partying increased, you know, as I said in the documentary, you know, there were nights that I was doing lines of cocaine, you know, and, and, and drinking, knowing that I had to be at the arena in, you know, an hour. Right. Man, that's (laughs) wild. That is something, man. On game day. Yeah. On game day. How many games did you play? Can you even think about how many games you played? You know, not many. So not many in college, right? There were a few that I came in, um, under the influence, um, knowing that it was still in my system, uh, but a ton professionally because mm. that's, that's a different world, right? Uh-huh. Opiates are a different world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You so know, I, I got it. My body needs it. 
Absolutely. So I, I got to go through this transition because I, I come from a, a family that's it has that addictive mm-hmm. that addiction is run rapid with, with rampant within my family. The question I have for you is when you were in high school, did you ever think that it would go escalate from drinking to marijuana to cocaine? And mm-hmm. was the drinking a gateway to all those other aspects? You, you know, it, I think the drinking at a young age allowed me to present a different way. Right. It kind of like they say the old, like it let my hair down. Like it it allowed me to, to act as if it allowed me to, 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 to pretend to be something else. Um, you know, cocaine and only people who have done cocaine and not all will identify with this, but cocaine was like a truth serum for me. Um, it allowed me to sit down and speak very honestly and, mm-hmm. and, and, and dive deep into like very thoughtful stories with, with, with people in the room. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, unless you've done it, it's tough to identify with, but at 18 years old, sitting up at four o'clock in the morning, you know, at BC drinking beers and doing lines, um, you know, I'm pouring my guts out to somebody mm-hmm. I've never met before. Um, and, you know, and saying a lot of things that should have been said in a completely different setting, obviously. Right. Um, but, but that's something that, that, that I was attracted to at a young age, um, with the, with cocaine. Mm. So you, you do, you know, you play your college career, you're balancing the, you know, the off the court with the on the court, and then you get to the NBA and mm. now money's introduced a lot of money. So how did the money escalate things or did it even really change anything for you? Because you talked about, I think at one point you had a $25,000 a month drug habit once you got to the NBA. So talk to us a little bit about how the the stardom changed things. I'll put it like this. I was playing for the Boston Celtics and my wife and I were living in the worst neighborhood in the city that I grew up in Mm. on a second floor of a two bedroom apartment above my father-in-law's office supply store. Um, and I'm playing in the NBA. Yeah. Like I grew up in a better neighborhood. Uh, and, and now I'm living in one of the worst neighborhoods in my hometown as a Boston Celtic. Um, and, you know, I remember, and, and I didn't make a lot of money, right? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, comparably to, to, a, to, to, to a lot of people, but, you know, the, the minimum salary when I was there was 303000 right, mm-hmm. before, before taxes. Um, you know, a drug problem will run right through that, mm-hmm. and it did. Yeah. Uh, you know, I remember going, it was, it was like a movie, and, and it was a real sad, tragic movie. I, I remember going to the same 7-Eleven every morning before I went to go meet my, my Oxycontin dealer. Mm. And, and I remember going to that 7-Eleven there was probably like 180,000 in that account. And, uh, I remember the, I remember the day that I withdrew the last 80 bucks, um, <sighs> you know, and that, that was, that was difficult, you know? Um, because see, for me, every time I went to the 7-Eleven, I'd say, I'm not going to be here tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Like, this is it for me. I'm done. Um, you know, and, and, and just from a, from a psychological standpoint, like, you know, I would, I would connect with drug dealers and they would say, Chris, you have all this money. You're playing in the NBA. Why don't you just buy in bulk? Mm. 
just buy, buy in bulk and we'll take care of it. And, and I never wanted to buy in bulk cause I didn't want to do it. That's admitting. Right. Right. That's admi- yeah. Yeah. I, I, I truly wanted to stop. So I, so I'm going to, I'm going to meet you every morning. I'm going to wait mm. in this parking lot and meet you every morning. Um, instead, uh, yeah. Because even though I had the resources, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I wanted nothing to do with it. So let's go back on that. So let's say you, you, you went and, and you bought the Oxycontin, you went home, yeah. you used whatever that same night. Did you, were you telling yourself that night? That's it. I'm done. I'm not going to show oh, up in the morning. Yes. For 10 years, for 10 years, I didn't want it. You know, for 10 years, I, I, I went to bed feeling like a failure, Right. you know, feeling like, you know, like how short am I falling, uh, as a father, right. um, you know, to wake up every morning and see those kids. And, and, you know, the first thing I have to do is, you know, is jump in my car and meet someone in order to be, uh, healthy enough, unhealthy and healthy enough to be engaged with my children. So, yeah, man. For, for, for years, it was, it was, it was a constant fight at night, you know? Right. Um, I wanted nothing to do with it. So how did you feel, Chris, if you were, if you were using, did you feel like that was the only way that you can be who you wanted to be when you were using, or did you feel like you were, you know, you weren't feeling the same or do you, I mean, I mean, there, there's a, you know, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that it's addiction is a disease. Yeah. I'm a firm believer in that. And it, it, it puts you in a situation where you have to be someone. You want to be the uh, the norm. Once you want to be that regular person, but you can't be that person unless you're using. Is that mm-hmm. what you? Is that how you were feeling? So you know, I think I think what happens is eventually you get to that point, right? Um, but in the world, opiates are so cunning, so powerful, right? That you know, without it, you can't function. So in your mind, you become like you're chasing feeling right. Mm -hmm. I just want to feel right. Like I stopped getting high. I just, I just wanted to hide the sickness. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like it wasn't even about getting high anymore. It was about hiding the sickness. It was about keeping the secret and not letting people understand how much I was struggling. Um, that's the, the, opiates are a different animal. It's an everyday thing. Um, you know, in college with cocaine, it wasn't, it was like once every three, four weeks. Um, you know, once I entered the world of opiates, it was a completely different addiction. It was a completely different mindset. And, uh, you know, and, and knowing that I couldn't function without it, you know, So, okay. So you're, you're back in Boston. You mentioned your wife, you mentioned your kids, uh, and you mm-hmm. talk about it on, on the documentary about hiding it from them. Um, but ultimate, you can't, you can only hide it for so long from the person that you live with. So yeah. what was that? What was that tipping point? And again, you talk about it, but I think that's really important to talk about is what was that point when, when your wife is like, okay, well, hold on, I can't do this anymore. Cause I see it. You're not, you're not talking to me about it. You're hiding it. Enough is enough. Um, I went to Italy and I was like, let's get out of the NBA. Let's make big money in Europe. 
Um, I flew to Italy. 9-11 happened uh, while we were there. Um, I jumped into heroin while I was there. Um, you know, it was very hard to manage my drug addiction in Europe my first time away, right? The hustle is different. I don't know people. I don't know neighborhoods. You got to try to figure your way. So long story short, I left. Next job came up was Istanbul, Turkey, right? So I jump on the plane. My wife says, I'm not coming with you. You go set up and I'll follow with the kids. I knew that there was going to be a day that my wife was going to open up the mail. And my wife was going to grab that statement from Morgan Stanley. Mm. And she was going to look at our funds and see that everything was gone. Because for about four years, three years, I was hostage in my home because I could not leave it until the mailman came. So I would wait every single day until I saw that mailman. And as soon as I saw him, I was free. Um, but I wasn't there. I was in Turkey and she opened it and she saw hundreds of thousands of dollars gone. And, and when I answered the phone in Turkey and she was crying and she was with my mom and her mom, and she's just said, like, you need to tell me what's going on. Where, where, where did all our money go? Um, you know, that's how my wife found out. Um, you know, and then obviously it transitions, right. You know, active addiction, you want to make, you want to make the people who love you as sick as you, Mm -hmm. uh, and not with drugs, just with confusion. Right. You don't want them to catch up to you. You want to be four steps ahead of you. So you're always throwing little grenades around to divert their attention. Um, you know, but once I became an intravenous drug addict, once I started shooting heroin, um, you know, all you had to do was look, all you had to do was roll up my sleeves. Right. Uh. Hey, wanted to take a quick break from the episode to thank our sponsor, Tito's Handmade Vodka. Tito's Handmade Vodka is distilled from corn and certified gluten-free. In the mid-90s, Tito Beverage, yep, that's his real name, Tito Beverage, built his very own mi- micro distillery in Austin, Texas, incorporating the boutique winery concept into the spirits industry. He acquired the first legal permit to distill in Texas and put his life savings into it, racking up 19 credit cards to build his own copper pot stills and condensers. He continues to produce award-winning smooth American vodka on the same land where where it all started over 20 years later. Tito's has won the unanimous judge's choice double gold medal at the World Spirits Competition, among other awards. It's got a modest paper label on a simple bottle, so all you pay for is the exceptional vodka inside. Visit us at titosvodka.com for recipes, videos, and more for the Tito's story. Crafted to be savored responsibly. So, so you play through 2006. Um, yeah. And, and what was that point when either an organization said, hey, man, you, you're not the player that you used to be for whatever reason, and basketball's over? What was that like, and what impact on you did that have? I was playing in Iran, Tehran. Mm-hmm. My connect in Tehran uh, was a cab driver. And 
he would only come by my house to drop Coke and liquor off between the hours of 2.30 in the morning and 5.30 in the morning. Um, so if I bought Coke from him that night, he would pull his cab up. I'd open my window and he'd throw it up to me and I'd throw him the cash. Uh, and I just, you know, I, I had big games and, and, you know, I'm sitting in my living room and, you know, I'm still doing Coke and I'm still drinking. And, the, and, and the, I know that the team is about to pick me up to play and it just enough was enough. And, you know, I, I, it wasn't even about performing. It was about faking. Mm-hmm. That was probably more exhausting than, than the playing was, 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 was playing this role that I'm a professional athlete. Um, you know, so, so in a sense, when I walked away from it, there was a little bit of freedom, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in a, in a, in a very sick way, there was a little bit of freedom because I was, I was, I was tired of pretending and, the reality is, and my wife will tell you this, every country I went to, I spent all the money in that country on drugs. Mm. Yeah. So I would never come home. I would, I would never really come home with anything. Man. So you're there in, 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 in Tehran and through that process, I mean, is that where you hit rock bottom? Is that, is, was that something, I mean, tell us about the mindset there. Cause you're having this con- you're by yourself and you're having this conversation. Is it like, I'm done. I'm walking away. I'm going home. What was that, that conversation with self? Like, yeah, it's lonely, right? Um, a lot of nights, you know, self-hatred, um, you know, a lot of self-hatred, a lot of disappointment, a lot of re- self-reflection. Um, but you know, I, I, I knew that I had, had nothing else in my life besides basketball. That was really the only thing I could really do mm-hmm. well. Um, and when I walked away from it, 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 it was difficult in many aspects, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that my identity was gone and, and the real me was about to show up. Right. Mm. Right. So go, let's, let's fast forward this. Cause I want, I want, yeah. there's so many that are people that are listening, kids that are listening right now. I have my, my 20 year old son who's in, in this room right now. And, Addiction is is real, man. It is real, and it starts early. It starts mm-hmm. really early, man. Can you give us some guidance to, you know, as a parent, just mm-hmm. as a parent, um, give us some guidance on some advice that you could give us when you, when as a parent, you sort of know something's going on with your child. You know, I say this. You know, I, I you know, the second documentary I did um, after the thirty for thirty is called the first day, and um, you know as I was speaking to kids, college kids, college athletes, high school kids, I felt that I was playing into the stigma of, of focusing on my worst moments. And, and I think oftentimes we focus on the worst day and we forget the first day. We talk about what drugs are going to do to you in the end, rather than why they're beginning. Mm-hmm. And I think parents, I think there's a lot of parents out there that, that, that look back and wish they intervened a little earlier. Um, I, I think many parents very rarely ask them why, um, you know, they want to find out who they're getting it from, what they're doing, when they're doing it, how, but they don't ask why, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and to sit down with your kid and look them in the eye and say, Hey, listen, man, I love you. Um, you know, I see what you can't see. I see the best in you and, and just, 
explain to me why you need to change yourself right now. Right. So we've spent a lot of time in this conversation, you know, talking about dark times, right? Yes. Like there's professional basketball through this period. You met your wife, you had kids, like there's some good things sprinkled in there, but the, the negative was a setup for what you're doing now. And I want to transition. And again, the, the rock bottom, and I think you talk about it in the documentary, right? You're in an alley. Was it Stockton or Merced or something like that? And, um, okay. So Modesto. go back. What was that? Modesto. Modesto. That's right. In between the two. Modesto, California. Yeah. Modesto. Yeah. So, so go back and watch that. Cause it's a powerful, I mean, I mean of all 30 for thirties and this is it just cause I, I watched you play when I was younger but like literally it's it's one of the most well done documentaries and and I haven't seen the second so I got to watch that. But go back and watch it. But what I want to know and I want to talk about is 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 man, like you have done some incredible things with with the trials and tribulations that you went through. And I'm a firm believer that that God has a purpose for all of us. And although we, we don't understand why he puts us through certain things and, and why, you know, he, he challenges us with certain diseases and addictions and, and issues, but like there is a purpose and man, like I gotta say, I gotta commend you on what you've done since that day in Modesto and, and the platform that you have and what you've done with it. So talk, talk about post 30 for 30, right? This releases right now you're speaking, you're doing all this stuff. And I know you were speaking a little bit before that, but like now you're speaking and telling your story to people and you're having a massive impact on people in a, in a great way. So talk from there on. Yeah. So, you know, obviously the 30 for 30 launched, right. Um, it changed my life and, you know, John Hawk, who was the director, um, the folks at ESPN, um, you know, I've sent them plenty of emails and text messages because they changed the, they changed the trajectory of my life and my children's lives. Um, you know, I went on shortly after to do about 250 speaking events a year. Um, you know, currently now, obviously with COVID, uh, it's a little bit different. Um, I had dialed it back a, a bit and do, I, I would do about 180 speaking events a year. Uh, with that, I started a little basketball company and wanted to inspire kids and just get in their ear and talk about self-esteem and self-worth. Um, wrote a book um, and then started my foundation. Mm-hmm. Chris Mullen, right? If it mm-hmm. wasn't for Chris Mullen and his wife, I wouldn't, I don't think I'd be here. Um, his phone call saved my family. Uh, so I wanted to be somebody's Chris Mullen. Mm, right. And I started, I started the Heron project and you know, the Heron project has, has, has given multi-million dollars worth of scholarships over the years. Um, thousands and thousands and thousands of, of people suffering from addiction have received scholarship through the Heron project. Uh, you know, we, we, we support families. We have groups online. We have clinicians that work for my foundation that hit, that help kids. We have workshops and prevention programs. Um, and you know, it's just, it's, it's been amazing. And then, you know, as I touched on in the beginning, I'm sitting at my wellness center. So I have 24 people living here right now who are suffering from alcoholism or addiction or mental health. And, you know, we just opened, I just opened the second one in Virginia um, you know, so I'm just part of it. I'm part of it. Right. And, you know, basketball, 
it gave me all the lessons in life that I needed. Right. Uh, it, it really did. Like I, I knew at a young age, I worked harder than most kids, yeah. um, that I had to apply myself. I applied myself differently than most kids. Um, you know, that competitiveness that, that I had as a child that sometimes hurt me, um, has now come back to, to give me a great, perspective and advantage in my recovery. Mm-hmm. You know, I work really hard at this. I'm diligent. It requires practice. It requires commitment and willingness and, and, and grittiness. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, my success today is because of others, right? I surround myself with unbelievable people and, and as athletes, I think we can identify. And I tell people in my wellness center all the time, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to play with the best. You know, I, I always wanted to walk on the court and play with the best. Um, I apply that in my recovery. You know, I, I want to surround myself with the best. I want to be in the rooms for meetings with the best. And, and, and so, you know, my success is because of others and, and the, the people that we've been able to help along the way is, is, is such a gift. Um, you know, because when you help someone suffering from addiction, you, 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 you help a whole family. Yeah. 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 You know, go ahead. Well, I'll say two things, two, two questions come to mind about what you're just talking about. Number one, what are some tangible things that you do today? What are the guardrails you have now in place for you personally Mm -hmm. that keep you on the right track? And number two, somebody's listening to this. They do struggle with addiction. They're hiding it from everybody else. What do you tell those people? What's the first step to get them on the right track? So prayer, right? I mean, let's, let's just talk about that. Like I'm very spiritual. Um, my mom died at 51 years old from lung cancer and, and the foundation she left me was her spirituality and her faith. Um, you know, I can't quote the Bible, but I'll talk to God, you know what I mean? And, Mm -hmm. and, and he's, he's held my hand and guided me along the way through my recovery. Um, so my faith is a huge component. Um, you know, obviously the inspiration of family, I have a 21 year old son a 19 year old daughter and a 12 year old. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they, for me, uh, watching them grow and, and, and for the last 13 years, you know, they've had a different dad. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that's like awesome, that that's awesome. the greatest gift I've ever been able to give. Yeah. Right. For the last 13 years, I've been the same dad, Yeah, you know, and in my history, where I come from and how I was raised, I never had the same dad. I didn't know what dad was coming through yeah. the door after yeah. work. Yeah. You know, and to have the same dad is, is an amazing accomplishment for me. Um, so, you know, and, and if someone's struggling, right, I think the stigma around addiction has taught, has, has told us that life is finished, life is over. And, and that's the furthest thing from the truth. Right. You know, recovery gives you such self-awareness and empathy and love for others. Um, and, and it creates this, this beautiful, uh, life and, and, and allows you to become the best version. And, and that's what recovery has given me. And, you know, I, listen, I shot dope, man. Like I was, I shot dope. I chased death for a feeling every day. Every single day I gave my kids a kiss, walked out of my house and I stuck a needle in my arm. I took a chance at dying. Yeah. And, and, you know, 
to be at that point at one time in my life and be where I'm at today is, is simply a blessing. And and everyone to know that if you are struggling, you know, um, it gets better. Yeah. You know, your story, man, is unbelievable. And in listening to your story early on, we, we started this episode, you were using the word I, Mm. I was going through this. I was going through this. And you see that as a transformation went on, it became we. Yeah. Mm. And I just want you to tell those kids that are out there that are thinking that they can get over this alone and they can kick this habit or this issue by themselves, man. Speak to that and, and, and some advice on that part. Yeah, of course. I always keep it on the eye when I'm talking about addiction for myself. When I talk about recovery, it's we. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is a this is a team effort, right? You need others. Um, you know, there's no way I could have did this alone. Um, you know, I, I had people hold my hand, and and I had to humble myself and and say I don't know, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna become coachable. I'm gonna I'm gonna allow you to coach me. Um, you know, unfortunately for kids, we've created a culture where we've almost surrendered to the fact kids are going to blaze blunts and drink liquor, you know, and that's, that's sad. You know, that's, to me, that's sad. Um, because the, because it doesn't have to be that way. And, and I think if we can challenge kids socially, um, you know, we, we, we can make impact. Uh, and like I said, in the beginning of the show, you know, that's the scariest thing about addiction. Nobody knows. And there's a lot of people, there's a lot of kids out there that are going to go out on Friday nights drinking smoke and life's going to be great. But there's a lot of them that it won't. Mm. You know, what else is interesting about you talking about the recovery and, and as we do more of these, you know, podcasts, it it seems like the answer always leads back to service of others, whether it's business Mm -hmm. success you're after, whether it's overcoming addiction, whether it's you want to be a better father or mother, it seems like the main theme that everybody goes back to is I started serving somebody else. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that's really cool that, that that's what you're doing now is you're serving other people and that helps you stay on the right track personally as well. I mean, service work is one of the pillars of recovery, right? I mean, it says it on every coin you get mm. for every year of sobriety, you know, um, service work mm. and, 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 uh, you know, it's, it's one of the cornerstones. Um, you know, like, like, as I mentioned, you know, I wake up every morning and, and, you know, through my foundation, Heron Project, Heron Talks, Heron Wellness, you know, there's nearly a hundred employees. Um, you know, 13 years ago, I was on food stamps, mm. you know, so, so life changes. Yeah, that's wild. What I love, man, is your story. It's, it's profound hope. Right. Like your, your journey is, is not unique, unfortunately. Right. There, there's too many people, um, in our country specifically, but, but everywhere that, that have a similar story. But what I love, man, is that not only is there another side, right? Not only, um, can, can you and the people around you start on a road to recovery and accomplish that and serve, but man, your selflessness to put it out there too, because very Uh easily you could recover in, you know, behind closed doors. Right. But, but you were, you, you had the humility to say, man, like the impact that I can make by putting it out there, put my story on ESPN by, you know, speaking to all these kids, 
I could, I could be fine with my wife and kids and just live a normal life, but like, I'm going to put myself out there. So honestly, man, I want to commend you for the, the, the route that you've taken the journey and the way you've carried yourself the last 13 years, you know, after, after just a really hard life before that, but you didn't let that define the rest of your life. You know, listen, I, I think it's, um, I think my mission over the last 13 years has to, you know, the, to break down the stigma um, that's attached to addiction, right? It's, 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 there's so much shame and guilt. And, um, you know, just a quick story and, and to show you the power of it, I was speaking in Pennsylvania midwinter, um, 15 minutes into my talk in this old school auditorium Mm -hmm. and the double doors open on the, on the main level. And I don't see anybody come in. It's like a ghost. And then two seconds later, I see this little head and he walks down the aisle and he, what he, he comes and he sits Indian style right in front of me. And this little boy is about seven, eight years old and he has no shoes on and it's midwinter and it's freezing and there's snow on the ground and ice. And I'm like, this little kid has no shoes on. Is anyone going to claim him thinking his parents were in the building? Long story short, after I got done, speaking he hugged my leg and he said to me um i saw you on the news and it said you know a lot about drugs and alcohol i live right down the street from the high school my parents are doing drugs right now can you come Mm. talk to them Mm, yeah that's a that's that's the level of impact and desperation that this seven eight nine year old boy had to, to run down to the high school to try to catch me, to bring me to his house to talk to his parents. Yeah, and that's the servant yeah. leadership that you have too, man, because it's not, this, spiritually, brother, it's showing out there. People are seeing it, and that yeah. means something. And it's not, look, the warrior mentality has not left you. It ain't nah. left you, man. Yeah. I saw you when you were in high school, bro, <laughs> and you were a warrior on the basketball court. Yeah. The warrior mentality has gone, transitioned to, to, uh, to this battle right now. Uh, in this disease right now. And there's so many people. Look, we, we're in the Dallas community. There's so many people right now that are struggling. Yeah. That are struggling, that need to hear your message and, and continue to hear your message. So I want you to talk a little bit more. I know we got to get going here, but about the, the, the wellness facility that you have right now. What's the message that you're spreading? And what's the vision? Are you trying, are you str- uh, moving forward as far as a national presence here? I don't know. Um, I mean, I'll, there's definitely expansion in the future, right? I think I'm looking in the Charlotte area a little bit now, um, maybe Philadelphia. Um, Virginia just opened three months ago. I love it. You know, it's a different approach. It's a very holistic approach. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, before we went on, I'm, I'm in a hyperbaric chamber room, which some guests love. Uh, acupuncture, massage therapy, vitamin infusions, personal trainers, yoga, meditation, guided. We do it all here. Um, because not everybody has the same path, you know, not everybody's going to rely on God. Um, not everyone's going to, going to, going to completely dive into Alcoholics Anonymous. So what I've done as a man in recovery is created a place that has multiple pathways to recovery. Um, you know, and, and to, to, to do that for me and my wife was a dream come true. Um, you know, I opened this place in Massachusetts when I was 10 years sober, um, And coming up on 13 years, uh, we've already opened Virginia. So, you know, living one day at a time, um, 
but but very passionate and, and ambitious and and again that warrior uh, mentality is um is very present and and you know it's 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 focused and centric on on helping others so you know as long as I'm I'm sober and, and God willing healthy uh, I'm gonna continue this mission and 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 live one day at a time and you know I just want to say to you like you know I, I'm I'm a football fan and. I, I, I understand and I know what you did uh, for the game of football and, and I recognize greatness and your greatness and it's an absolute honor, honor Thanks, that, that I'm, I'm, I'm sitting on this show with you right no, now. No, man, so, brother, let yeah. me tell you this. It's an absolute honor for us hey, three. He's a punk compared to you, dude. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, dude, I'm telling you, man, you're touching so many people, yeah. man. And again, I, 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 it, it runs in my family. Uh, we, yeah. I've had to deal with it in a in a cl- close proximity, man. And what you've been saying today spoke right to me, so man, I really appreciate what you you coming on the show. Yeah, well, we, thank you. And, and we got one more question, and I've been I've been itching for ten years to ask you this question when I first saw that documentary. Uh, and by the way, we keep referencing it. We we went through this really quickly. Go back to that documentary for all the details. The the ESPN thirty for thirty. And we ask every guest this, but like I said, I've been waiting for 10 years to ask you this one. If you could go back to any point in your life and just tell yourself one thing, doesn't necessarily mean you go back and change anything, but if you go tell yourself one thing, where do you go and what do you tell yourself? Man, I probably crawl into this little bunk bed I had when I was like seven years old, uh, listening to my parents, you know, scream about, my father's alcoholism. Um, I'd probably jump in that little bunk bed with that kid and, 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 and tell him it's okay to cry. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, you know, no matter what, it's going to be okay. Um, you know, I, I had to do that for Gail King. Um, Gail King and CBS morning show asked me to write a note to self and, you know, two documentaries, two books, I'm like 500 words. I can bang that out in an hour. It was one of the saddest, most emotional things I've ever done is write a note to my younger self um, to talk that little boy, you know, who, you know, was growing up that way and, 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 you know, wet in the bed and, you know, like not knowing how my parents were going to react and who, who was showing up and, you know, like to, to, to talk to that kid, um, and, and say, you know, everything's going to be okay, you know, and, and, uh, and that's, that's where I would go back probably. Man, it's awesome. Unbelievable. Yeah. Chill, be- man. Yeah. But yeah. Hey, Chris, thank you so much, man. We, we can't, we can't thank you enough. Uh, I mean, just for sharing your story, uh, with our, with our listeners, man, and, and anything we can do we're you know, we're here in Texas, anything we can do to help you in any way at all, please do not hesitate to reach out. I think I'm going to be at Highland Park. All right. Um, so that's that's you know that's in that's that's in that area. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll I'll reach out and maybe swing by the studio. Absolutely, yes, we love it. So we love it. Yeah. Man. When you're in, man, before you come, let us know and we'll get ready for you. All right, brothers. Thank yeah. you so much. Right. Man, thank, thank you, you man. Thanks, man. Appreciate you. All right. All right. Bye.